Welcome to episode 137 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. Just recording a little bit of podcast right now, which obviously by definition, since you're listening to this, you know we're recording a podcast right now, but it's a good day. It's a good Lord's Day. This is actually not the, the only podcast I'm recording today, so it's going to be really? a busy afternoon. Yeah. I'm recording with the Reformed Pilgrim guys later for their Ten Commandments series. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, which is not my particular affirmation for our conversation today, but can I sneak in like a little go get yourself some Reformed Pilgrims because that is a quality and stellar podcast found on the one and only Society of Reformed Podcasters. Yeah, it's good. Their uh, their series so far on the Ten Commandments has been really solid. I've really enjoyed it. And um, not to be too much of like a promotion here, but... Uh, Jim Wright from the Reformed Pilgrims uh, podcast sent me a hooded sweatshirt from their merch store. Super comfortable, wicked stylish. Uh, you should check it out. They're really, really, really comfortable. Wicked stylish. They I are. love that. That is like some New England flavor coming yeah. through right there. Yeah, it's nice because it's like a nice, like solid navy blue. It's like exactly the color of their logo. I'm not exactly sure how uh, Raf picked that, like figured that out, but it's a it's a sweet shirt. So why don't you kick us off then, since you're already going strong in the recommendations, what are you affirming this week? Yeah, so this is a little bit of a strange affirmation. You got you to gotta follow with me. It's, it's a little twisted here. But I, I watched a movie the other night called Mary Queen of Scots. Now, okay. I'm not affirming the movie. I mean, it was well done. It's like a, like a biopic. All the acting was really good. Um, it, the, the, like the main storyline had to do with kind of the race to produce an heir. Like if you go back in history around this time, um, Elizabeth the first was, is known as the Virgin queen of England. She didn't have an heir. Mary queen of Scots, um, was kind of would have been the next in line for the queen of England. So if she produced an heir, her heir would be the heir to both, uh, the, the throne of Scotland and the throne of England, which is what ended up happening. Right. James, the, uh, James, the first took over, um, and was the first monarch of the United kingdom. Um, it wasn't called the United Kingdom, but that's essentially what it was. So the movie was okay, but because it's like driven around uh, producing an air, there's a little bit of sexual content. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend the movie. It's nothing overly, overly bad. There's no like massive nudity or anything. Like I think you see like a guy's butt. So just be prepared. Um, but <laughs> Good to know. but uh, the the crowning <laughs> achievement of the movie, from my perspective, is that. If you know anything about Mary, Queen of Scots, one of the main um, antagonists in her monarchy is John Knox and like that John Knox. And so that John (laughs) Knox is a character in the movie. And it's funny because he's supposed to be painted as a character that you're supposed to dislike. So like he was very vocal about the fact that like she was not a moral woman. She was a Catholic queen. So like there's a scene where like he's standing in front of a congregation preaching and he's like, this woman is a whore. She's bedded three men whom she's not married to. And she's like, he's like going off about it. And he's like, we will not submit to the tyranny of women. These papists, we will not bow to. And and, like you're expected in this movie, you're expected to be like gritting your teeth and hating this guy. And I'm like, you preach. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Preach John Knox. It was just really funny because, like, it was this weird cognitive dissonance between what was supposed to happen and what they intended you to. And because I know the history, I was like, yeah, you go, John right. Knox. So my affirmation is John Knox, particularly in this movie, it was just phenomenal. So he's not, like, a major part of the movie. He's got, like, four or five scenes. He's in, like, one of the first scenes, though. It's really funny. But yeah, he's, it's funny that, I mean, they, they did like the, the picture of him. Well, he's got the right kind of hat, the beard, everything's really good. There is like a serious irony when there are portrayals of Christians in kind of secular media, like writ large, where clearly the goal is to make it seem like the Christian is the enemy. Like they're really obscure in that their views are too conservative and they're outmoded and outdated. And you watch that and you're just like, I'm totally down with this. Yeah. Like this is my, these are my people. This is my boy right here. So, I mean, like this is Mary Queen of Scots who said like that. I fear the prayers of John Knox yeah. more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it, they weren't really trying to make him the enemy because he's a Christian. They kind of were making him the enemy because the movie 
is supposed to be basically coming from Mary's perspective. So it's all about Mary, right. Queen of Scots, and like all of the different men in her life who basically manipulate her, who steal her crown, who cause all sorts of problems in her in her life and in her monarchy. So he's he's just kind of a natural enemy because he was an enemy of Mary, like he was op- opposed right. to Mary. Um, they didn't they didn't misrepresent him at all. I mean, I think all the things he was saying, most of the things he was saying, I actually think come out of his one of his more famous works, which is called it's called like the the tremendous blast against the tyranny of women or something like that. But it's this like really vitriolic polemic work that he wrote against the, the monarchy of um, Mary Queen of Scots primarily, but also Elizabeth the first. Um, and like this book was so inflammatory that even John Calvin was like, mm, I don't think we're going to publish that in Geneva. He was like, mm, better not better not do that. So don't, don't watch the whole movie, but fast forward it till you look like, till you find some of that looks like uh, John Knox, just listen to his scenes and then stand up and cheer. Cause it was pretty good. That's great. I love, I love your representation of that. Like even John Calvin while reading that stuff was like, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't publish them. Like that's a true story. Calvin wouldn't right. publish Knox's, a lot of Knox's works because he thought it was, uh, I think some of it was probably a little bit of political expediency that he didn't want to like have his name on it. But he said like some of it was just it wasn't it wasn't keeping in Christian charity, and that was just right. John Knox's yeah. personality. So Dude, anyway, he was hardcore. He was. He was. He, was he carried hard-core. around like a big broadsword with him most of the time. Right. I mean that in some ways you're kind of like man, that's like John Knox and theology meet like the Highlander. Like I know. Was, yeah. Hardcore. That's why I love Scottish preachers so much. Yeah, it was crazy. And here's why, like, real quick, I identify with John Knox, because that beard is like an unmistakable beard. And basically, that's what I've got going on now. And I realized that the John Knox beard is the most lazy beard you can grow because it is like a no trimming beard. Like my beard right now is like all one length, which means like I got some crazy neck beard and like some crazy like side beard going on. It's true. Much. Yeah. Much to my wife's like amazing and incredible chagrin. So I, like, yeah, he's my boy. It's an exceptional and very, like, well-defined beard. You see that, and you're like, that's John Knox. Yeah, I think that you should dress up as John Knox for uh, end of October, no special reason day. <laughs> Reformation day, you Reformation. Mean? No, no, that that's just another holiday. Even Reformation <laughs> day is too, too much of a man-made holy day for me. Well, I, I totally agree with you on that. But, yeah, there, yeah there's nothing like asking for candy on the one day of the year that apparently you can do that yeah without reservation from the neighbors that you do not know so on that Strangers, day i'd yeah. be happy yeah awesome. i looks at my, my my scottish accent is horrible so well it can't be worse than mine so i don't know that that impression was on point <laughs> i loved everything about what you just did there yeah everything you'd think with as much uh listening to like liam gallagher and alistair Begg and like scottish preachers that i'd have picked something up but i really i really haven't not at all. It's tough. The struggle is real. Yeah. All right. What are you, uh, what are you affirming? So like yours, my affirmation is a little bit strange. So it's, it's equal parts. I'm trying to recommend something and equal parts kind of throwing out a challenge as a grand experiment. So I'm affirming this website called meetup.com, which probably everybody in the world is already well familiar with, but I was not. And so basically it seems to me like this meetup.com is like this giant kind of more sophisticated omnibus for public calendars. But if you go to it, it's basically any person can register a group and put all of their their activities on this. So let me just give you a flavor for when I went to meetup.com, what pops up because it's obviously tracing my IP like everybody else in the world. So it knows like where I am. But here's some of the things that are happening in my local region for the calendar within 25 miles. So within very close distance. So there's a Geek Girls Gathering. It's a 2019 book club. There's Day Hikers, their annual garlic mustard challenge poll. There's something for spiritual explorers. It's experience of the sound of soul. There's a Sufi meditation group. There's a mom's club, which is a family picnic and reptile show. And then there's a Curly Tails pug meetup, and it's a birthday party pool bash. So here's why I'm recommending this. I actually think this is brilliant because it struck me that this is a wonderful way for somebody to see what's going on in the community, get to know people that are probably outside their kind of normal range of kind of relationships, but with something that they're already interested in. So for instance, like if you're a pug owner, like the curly tails pug meetup is your jam. (laughs) And 
I think this is a great way to kind of meet perhaps people who are not, again, like just in your normal friend kind of range and get to know people and share the gospel. And my wife has kind of done this. So I'm really impressed by this whole idea. Like here's just like for the taking, like here is the harvest just out there begging you to come and get involved with people that are just like you, but that you probably would not have met otherwise. So meetup.com strikes me as like just a wonderful opportunity to really get to know people because you love God and you want to love others and as a way to kind of share the gospel, get to know some other people. So maybe it's strange, but it's equal parts. Go to meetup.com. And I kind of challenge people to find a group of people that they might not otherwise meet by using this website. Yeah, that's a good word. Although um, if you ask me to write a list of events that are the least likely to interest you, I think that's pretty close to the list I would have come up with. (laughs) I can't tell which one is more, uh, more likely to draw your attention if it's the spiritual, whatever it was, or the, yeah. uh, the curly tail pug group. I feel that like, I, I appreciate that you ranked the curly tails least more, more like unlikely for me to participate in than the Sufi meditation group. <laughs> oh no, that's more likely. Those are like the top, <laughs> the two most likely for you to participate in. I, I'm not going to lie to you when I saw this, cause it happens at two 30. I was like, dang, I kind of want to show up to this Sufi meditation group and be like, <laughs> What what are we doing here, people? Yeah, like if, I mean, if, if you're, you're going to crash, if you're going to crash a Muslim gathering, Sufi meditation is probably the least risky one to crash. Yeah, I kind of I kind of feel that. So I'm curious. Like, I challenge people to go check this out and see if there's something out there that that hits them. So, all right, in terms of like denials, I'll you kick it off again. What do you got going this week? So this is a little bit of an extension of my denial from last week. So last week we talked about just stupid, silly liberal logic and how sometimes you can liberal so hard that you become a conservative. (laughs) So we talked about this weird like sex strike that Alyssa Milano is trying to promote. And we were like, yeah, we've had that for a long time. We just call it abstinence. (laughs) But now they're talking about uh, how there should be league, some sort of legally binding scenario where if a man impregnates a woman that he's legally obligated to that woman and this child. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we've had that for a long time too. It's called marriage. So it's like we've gone. So they're, they've liberaled so hard that they're now promoting women not have sex with men unless they're in a legally obligated relationship such that any child that's produced from that sex is, uh, legally obligated to be cared for by them. And I was like, yeah, so don't have sex until after you're married. It's pretty much right. what you've come around to. And and then it, it's like cut to all the conservatives and they're like, yay, like right. rejoice. So it's just funny because like these concepts, they're treating these concepts like they're so radically brand new. And we're like, yeah, like this is what we've been saying for like a thousand years. So and this is what it really boils down to, to sort of tie it back around to sort of like, how do we use this in terms of combating like this liberal tendency in our culture? What it comes back around to is this, is that abortion makes casual sex less risky. And so when you press on abortion and you restrict abortion, you make casual sex more risky, which makes the value of monogamy higher. Exactly. so, So this is just a real world concrete example like this is this is basically like free market social economics like social ethics is we've now pressed on abortion in alabama they've pressed on abortion and made it illegal and so that naturally forces the ethical market to gravitate towards monogamy which is like oh geez that's weird that's like exactly what the bible does right a man's not like this is one of those things where the 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 Bible atheists and skeptics point at the Bible and they're like, oh, look at the Bible. It's so terrible. If a man rapes a woman, he has to marry her. And we're looking at that going, actually, that's supposed to be a deterrent to rape. And it was right. by and large was successful from what we know. Um, it's either that either you marry the woman or you are stoned to death. So, like, what's the option? Well, there's three options. Men who take advantage of women become legally obligated to them and, and have to care for them for the rest of their lives. They're not allowed to divorce them. All the normal things that um, are given kind of like um, escape clauses from a marriage in the scriptures, those are voided. So this person cannot divorce their spouse. Um, either that or they get stoned to death or they don't rape women. Like, all of those things right. are favorable righteous outcomes in a scenario like that right if someone violates a woman then he either is obligated to care for them or there's a judicial punishment or it motivates people not to violate each other like that so i just think it's funny that like the liberals don't 
they've disconnected themselves from any sort of like sense of reality and and it just shows because they're now they're now proposing suggestions that a year ago they would have thought were just terrible suggestions so right. i just think it's i just think it's funny so i'm i'm uh denying silly liberal logic but i'm affirming the fact that these people are looping back around to conservative solutions because it just shows how out of touch with reality they are I want to say two things in response to that. The first is that I love that you took liberal and turned it into a verb as in they liberaled so hard. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely going to steal that and use that every chance I get. Do the it. second is I love how passionate you are about what you just said there. And I'm quickly coming to the realization that soon our podcast is just going to be denials. And it's gonna, we're going to get through denials and be like, well, that's all the time we have. I so. think our podcast already kind of is just denials. <laughs> like at least one out of four is like, well, our denial is going to be the whole episode this week. <laughs> that's true. Let me talk that's about John Piper, John MacArthur. <laughs> it's funny because our denials end up being people in our own camp. So I don't know if that's right. good or bad. Well, I think that's probably good. Yeah, we focus on like a lot of kind of in-house family issues, I hope. Yeah. What about you? What are you denying? All right. So this has to, I, this is kind of going to be of, of at least like equal weight to what you just said. And I feel like I got to give a bunch of caveats to this or at least one. The first is that I recognize that I'm about to like drop in some ways. Not, it's a bomb, but I don't want to be like hyperbolic about it. It may be shocking to some. So that's the first. The second is that um, for everybody that is Baptist, I'm not betraying my Baptist roots here or my convictions. So don't, don't at me. I think I know where this is going. And the third is that if you are driving a motor vehicle right now or operating any kind of heavy equipment, you probably want to stop doing that because what I'm denying against this week is child dedication. Oh just man. Because <laughs> oh man. I don't know if I can participate in this conversation right now. I, I know. I know. See, you know, now most of the time we're going to agree on the denials that we have, but I know in particular, and I, and see, this is why I've, I hesitate to bring this up, but I want to deny it just because I've been thinking about it again. I'm, I'm just not, when I say that I do not understand the place of child ed, ed, uh, dedication, you have to understand that what I mean is I understand why people that are not, you know, particularly uh, convicted by, you know, like pedo baptism want to do this. I understand why you want to do this, that there is this kind of sensibility of bringing a child into the covenant community and expressing that. I understand that and I get that. But what I struggle with is if you want to do that, you should just do that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're okay. totally right. Right. So I, I'm and still you, you like, don't, you don't mean therefore baptize. You just mean like, just do what you're, what you're dedicating yourself to do. Right. Exactly. Like if, yeah. if this is, I, I think that most of the time when I see child dedication done, it is this kind of weird trying to like kind of smuggle in this sense of pedo baptism. And I realize that's sounding super unfair right now. Uh, but what I mean is that I, I just can't find like good reason to do it. If you want to go that route, if you feel very strongly about that, then just go straight like into baptism. So I still stand by like the, my convictions of credo baptism. It's just a matter of I just don't really understand the place of the child dedication because it seems like yeah. kind of a, a halfway meeting area. And again, I know people are going to within the hearing of my voice and just like destroying their devices that they're listening to the podcast on right now. Uh, but I'm trying to be charitable in the sense that I just do not understand like its role because i think that what we're really after like in other words if you're credo baptist i don't feel like you need to do the child dedication because it's it's already like present it's already embedded it's right. already impounded in something that we don't need to speak about which is i would understand that any child born into that kind of family of a believing parent is already in the covenant we don't need to express that right if you want to have like a time to like display your child which i'm totally down with and like just say that's what it's about but the, uh, my fear is that in many churches, the dedication becomes something that it's not, or subtly parents feel like this, this compulsion that, well, if I don't dedicate my child, like something in the future is not going to, going to happen according to plan. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I'm really denying against. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. And, and ultimately for me, this is about the regulative principle of worship, right? So, so, you know, I think, um, so when you're talking about a church service, right, the gathered worship on the Lord's Day, in most Reformed uh, contexts, the actual formal worship service starts with a call to worship and an invocation uh, led by someone on the ministry team, usually the pastor. 
right. then is closed by the benediction. And so there may be things that happen sort of like auxiliary to that on the front end before the dedicate or before the um, call to worship or at the end after the call to worship that aren't actually part of the worship service itself. So I actually wouldn't have much of a problem if prior to the call to worship, a new, a new set of new parents were brought up in front of the congregation. And the pastor said something like, Hey, we're going to take this time before we start our worship service to, to introduce the newest member of our church family here, which is actually a paid Baptist way to look at it. But anyway, <laughs> we're going to introduce the newest member of our little group here and we're going to pray for them and we're going to celebrate this new baby in our midst. And then, you know, they do that and then they start the call to worship. That would be fine. Or if they did that afterwards, what really confuses me in, in reformed Baptist circles that do this, I mean like 1689 Baptist circles that do this, they do it in the worship service. And so right. uh, this is in no way to say that Baptists are liberals or liberalizing forces or anything like that, but it actually ends up being kind of the same phenomena that we just talked about with the liberals is like they they so desperately are trying to like explain or like include this thing that they end up flipping all the way back around to basically the position that they deny and right. a, for a lot of baptists and this is not all baptists not even all baptists that do baby dedication for a lot of baptists that do baby dedication dedication, they actually end up essentially just having a dry baptism. I went to a church in Minneapolis. I uh, was part of the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, group, like the Evangelical Covenant Church of America. And um, in those churches, I think the ESCA is the same way. In those churches, they, they're dual practice, right? So they do both baby baptisms and baby dedications, right? And in the church that I was in, the liturgy, the language that was used for baby dedication and baby baptism was identical except for the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, or I dedicate you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Other than that, it was the exact same script. So much so that the pastor accidentally said the wrong thing once because he didn't even have a second script. It was baptize slash dedicate. Like he had one card that had the liturgy on it. So right. like those kinds of situations, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like I just don't understand it. I just want to remind everybody real quick, because we need to move on, but like that I am the Baptist here. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm also the one saying, maybe this is a call to Baptists everywhere, yeah. like to unite, that in the sense that we haven't done a good job, that if you want to do this separately, to really differentiate it, because I totally, 100% agree with you that all, there are some that do this better than others, but oftentimes I've heard pastors, it's almost like the longer they, they speak about what the dedication is, particularly in like the presence of the congregation, they, they make themselves, they get themselves like a hand breath away from straight on baptism. Right. And I guess, I guess that's kind of what I'm denying is like, if you yeah. really want to try and differentiate it, then you need to differentiate it and make it that it's something completely different. But it sounds to me, and I would say like eight out of 10 cases that it is basically baptism. Yeah. So... I just don't think it's necessary. I know it's, that's probably going to make me super unpopular, but I'm trying no, to like kind will. of, well, I'm just trying to kind of push forward this idea of like, let's be like really thoughtful and critically evaluate the things that we do on the Lord's day, because I'm, I'm all about the regular principle. And in fact, like that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about because yeah. we're, we're moving through Joel Beakey's book on reform preaching. And there's so much in this that is drawing us back to what is it that God prescribes when it comes to preaching. And so we're getting to chapter five in this book um, and I think this is like, you know, just another one of those things that we can use to kind of try to understand what it is that God wants us to do on the Lord's day. But real quick, before we jump into the book, chapter five, uh, what I wanted to say was I want to thank so many people who have started giving to the podcast through yeah. patreon.com. And of course, like we unequivocally say that like your first responsibility in your giving is to your local church. And if you have resources that are available to you beyond what you're responsible to give to your local church, we are so thankful for those who have said we'd like to give toward the podcast. So I just want to thank those people. We had a couple of people come on recently who are giving monthly gifts very generously to help us cover our costs, which yeah. we have costs. So yeah. it's a great blessing for us to be able to continue to move forward with the podcast without having to worry to cover those like expenses that we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've, we've talked about it before that God has been um, gracious to us in this podcast that he has seen fit to use our sort of silly little podcast to build this community around the show to, I mean, we get the most amazing emails about 
people who have had questions and then we were addressing them on the show and there was no connection between the two except for God's providential superintendent. So God has really been using the show to edify the people who listen to it. Um, even, even like people will use a question that we've asked on the show and they'll, they'll start a conversation at their church and the, the question will kind of like ripple through their church as they explore the implications that we've talked about. So that That's is crazy. very humbling, but none of that would really be possible if it weren't for the fact that we have several people now who generously give and, and God ordains the ends as well as the means. And so God is, is operative through the gifts that people give us through the support that people give us to do the show. And there's been times too, where we have something come up that we weren't expecting that we hadn't budgeted for. And then a, uh, a gift will come in that is like a specific dollar amount that's really close to what we need. We had a, we had microphones break one time and literally I went to log into our PayPal to see how much was in there and someone had sent us almost exactly the amount of money that we needed to record or to get a new microphone that I didn't even know had come in until I logged in to the PayPal. So God is really moving and is really operative through the generosity of our listeners and we can't say thank you enough. Right on. So I want to encourage people, you know, I think sometimes when people listen, and I'm this way myself, like sometimes people listen to a podcast and they've been, they've been tracking with it and moving along with it, with the hosts and with the conversation. We love to have you give. And in fact, like if, you, and what is the website? It's just patreon.com slash, I think it's slash reform brother. If you go to reform our brother. website to reformbrotherhood.com, there's a link that says join the brotherhood. And there's a link in there for where to go if you'd like to give. Yeah. So for instance, I want to challenge you. Like if uh, you've just heard our conversation about child dedication and you're Baptist, maybe you want to give a monthly gift of $16 and 89 cents just to let us know <laughs> that you're out there and that you're doing your thing. But in, in all, all joking aside, like we would love any kind of gift. There are plenty of people that give what I, I think most of us would consider like, these are small gifts, $2, $5 a month. Like I yeah. cannot tell you how much that means to us in terms of not only helping us to, to take care of the expenses that we have that are, that are real, that allow us to not have to worry about continuing to move forward. But it also kind of shows that there are people tracking with us, that there is like an actual brotherhood and sisterhood of believers yeah. that are coming alongside and rallying around the message of the scriptures, which we hope we're talking about every time we get on the microphones, where Jesus Christ is King, he's Lord of our lives and Lord of the world, and really we want to see him lifted high. So that, that's really the whole point of this. And of course, finance is one of the ways that God uses the resources of his people to move the gospel forward. So we're just insanely thankful for those that are willing to give of their hard-earned dollars and respect the fact that everything that we have is from the Lord. So I want to encourage anybody that would be is feeling like they would like to join in with that, please do, because we really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why don't we uh, why don't we jump into chapter five here? Yeah, so chapter five in Reform Preaching by Joel Breakey is is kind of a, a watershed transition moment because I don't want to say we're finally, but after all this kind of defining of terms, setting the groundwork, getting an underpinning of what he's talking about when he talks about reform preaching, we're finally getting into like some examples, some yeah. illustrations of reform preaching. And this is super exciting. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of change in direction. And so he talks about three reformed preachers in this chapter. Do you want to say who there are? Because I want you to pronounce the names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to go with last names. So there's Zwingli, Bollinger, and Oikolampadius. And I think that last one is probably my least favorite of the three in terms of my of preachers, but probably my most favorite of the three in terms of his name. It's a super slick name. And, it is. And so like what we've been talking about so far is, and what he kind of beaky ushers us into in looking at now all these examples, which now he's going to start to talk about and kind of go through all of these different preachers and, and talk about their styles. And in addition to that, kind of how they understood experiential preaching is this idea that the scriptures in this time were really like the central means of the Reformation. It was like the primary task of ministry was to preach the gospel, this, the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. And even he talks about how even like church architecture emphasize yeah. that the primary role of the preacher was the minister of the word or the preacher of the gospel. And so the first thing that really jumped out to me that I want to talk about was this idea that in each of these gentlemen's lives, preaching was regarded as the primary means, really like the essential exclusive means whereby God's saving grace and love came home to the consciousness of the individual. And when I, when I looked at what he presented about each of these gentlemen, I was really struck by the challenge that is that the case in modern evangelicalism, do we still view preaching as a primary means or yeah. has it sometimes been placed with, I need a mental hook. I need something not even just entertaining, but I need something 
that uh, is a better presentation than just the preaching of the word? Like, what say you about that? Yeah, you know, I think that that really is the case. So, so Matt Chandler, I haven't read much of the article yet, but Matt Chandler, I guess, in a recent sermon at the village, said more or less like the village has become a place that's primarily been about entertaining a group rather than preaching the gospel. Not so wow. much from the um, from the preaching, like the 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 preaching hasn't changed that I can tell. But but he has talked about how their church has become an arena culture. And so people come to the village church, not to hear the gospel preached, but to hear Matt Chandler preach the gospel. And that's a very different thing. And I think, you know, in our day and age, it absolutely is the case that the method of preaching has replaced the centrality of preaching. And what I mean mean by that is that you might have someone say like, oh, I would go to that church, but like, I don't know, the preaching's just really dry. And, and they don't really seem to care all that much about the content. They're more concerned right. about the style or what, it, what, what do I get out of it? Um, and I think that, that Beaky's book as a whole, but especially as we get into these early reformed preachers, really serves as a corrective for, for that. Because these preachers, one of the main, you know, we've talked about it. One of the main things that was recovered in the Reformation was a return to the simplicity of early church worship. Right. So right. sometimes we look at like the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church and we see how ornamental it is and how extravagant it is and how um, sensory it is. And we buy the lie that this is the early work, early worship of the church was this sensual experience. I don't mean like sexual, but sensual in terms of like appealing to the senses, smells and bells and all this stuff. But the early church, their preaching from what we have of it was actually incredibly simple. It was, it was, um, you know, he talks about how Zwingli preached in the style of the early fathers. He got up into the pulpit. He had a set amount of time. He opened the scriptures. He just explained the text that he was at. And when his time was done, he made a few application points and then he stopped talking. Right. right. There wasn't usually a theme. There wasn't, there wasn't some sort of clever, you know, sermon introduction. There wasn't anything. It was, he got up there, he opened up the Bible to where they were preaching last explain what was going on and then moved on with the rest of the service. So it, I think we have to remember that reformed preaching is characterized by that simplicity, right? That's not to say like a sermon illustration or a sermon introduction that that's necessarily bad, but the point is that the preaching should be simple, straightforward, and should come from the scriptures, not from the mind or the talent of the preacher. And that's why there's like something decidedly about our modern turn of mind that wants, I think, to rebel against that, that we need to embellish it. We need to come with some kind of spectacular presentation. Whereas what I was impressed by is that in, in each of these guys' life, especially Zwingli, like you said, he has a commitment to just go through the scripture. In fact, like Joel kind of speaks about how he popularized this Lectio Continua, this idea of yeah. continual public reading in which he would just move through the scriptures, almost kind of like a snail's pace, but moving through and just discoursing and exegeting what was in the word of God, such that God himself in a way was really setting the agenda for what was happening on the Lord's day. And what you get out of that is a different sense than what I think we understand it to be. So what I mean by that is so many times we look at theology and we think, well, here's something that must be impacted. We need to have like some kind of egg egg-headed people really come and deliver to us that which we cannot understand by ourselves. But when you look at like the preaching of Zwingli, what we see is that theology took hold of the nations, literally, through yeah. the preaching of God's words from heart to heart. It wasn't that we needed an academic discipline in which we need to invest ourselves and so dis disassociate from the actual practical application. Here what we have is theology is born out of how do I live rightly? How do I understand what piety should look like? How do I understand what it means to be sanctified and to live that kind of life? And out of that comes the theology which is, which is necessary to live that way. So there's no like disassociation between the gospel and what it means to think deeply about Jesus and about God, to study him. Those things are interconnected in such a way that the discipline isn't, isn't even necessary because it's a life lived rightly that's dedicated yeah. to those things. So I feel like that's something that we miss a lot today. And I think that's kind of what Beaky is drawing our attention to. And I think that sometimes we look at kind of these old, these old setups 
for, you know, if you look at kind of like a lot of European churches, for instance, you see this kind of pulpit that is high and lifted up, so to speak. Yeah. It's probably a bad way to say that, but <laughs> kind of se- se- separate and at least like looking down. It was right. this understanding, not that Christians were worshipers of the Bible, but they were worshipers of the one who has given the Bible. Right. And then it deserves a place of authority and prominence. And that prominence should actually be reflected in the physical construction of our places of worship. And part of me identifies with that, not just because like I want to be an old man and shake my fist and say, like, get off my lawn, but mainly because what I want to say is like, that's what we need to return to. That it's it's not about really clever presentations. It's not about amazing mental hooks or even amazing openings. It's just about the reading of the scriptures. I was having a conversation with my father this week. And something I hear you reminded me of was that even in the worst of sermons, let's say like somebody, a preacher who just like misses the mark entirely. Yeah. Even when that preacher is reading the scriptures, there is something happening that the spirit is empowering those words because it is his words, yep. that there's something special even there. And so I think that's something that they realize that we often fail to realize. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely spot on. And the thing that we have to remember is that during this era, right, we talk about some, someone asked me, I don't remember what the context was, but somebody asked me if I thought we were living in an age where, um, Biblical literacy was at an all-time low. Um, in the world as a whole, that's probably the case. But in right. in those professing to be Christians, absolutely is not the case. In the Middle Ages, there you could be a Christian your whole life and and never actually read the Bible like for yourself because people for didn't sure. know how to read. And so the, one of the challenges going into the Reformation was that people didn't understand, they didn't know the Bible. And so that's, that's part of the reason why this Lectio Continua approach developed is that the people were getting the whole scripture because that was what was being preached each week is they would work their way in a, in you know, verse order, verse by verse order through the whole scripture. And, you know, I've mentioned on the show briefly that there was a time when I actually had decided to convert to Roman Catholicism. And one of the things that um, had convinced me, right? So I had a weird, a weird story in that regard is that the thing that convinced me to become Roman Catholic was that there was actually more scripture being presented in a Roman Catholic mass over the course of a year than there is in a Protestant, most Protestant churches to our shame, right? That that's a problem, but it was absolutely what I had experienced in my kind of seeker sensitive semi mega church in Minneapolis is the scriptures were kind of like a side piece. They were, they were, they were like seasoning on top of the meal. Like it, it, it's there and it, it colors what we're doing, but it's not, it's not really what we're there for. And so my thought was, well, you know, if I'm really a Protestant, then the answer is to go where there's more scripture. And at the time, the answer where there's more scripture was Rome. So that's obviously not real because the answer is to actually go to a legitimate reform congregation where the Bible is the centerpiece. But in in those contexts, like that's the same context. So that's why it's so important for us as Reformed Christians, especially those of us who preach from time to time, um, it's important for us to remember that the scripture is what we are preaching, not not our own imaginations or inventions or even our own interpret or interpretation. Um, when I step into the pulpit, I want to be preaching the scripture, right? right so sometimes I'll actually have people tell me that the sermon has too much scripture in it. And, and some of that is like, well, you know, you're not making your point. You're not explaining enough, but if I can read scripture to interpret other scripture, if it was possible to make a sermon that was entirely a strung together set of scriptures, that would be the ideal sermon. That's not really the way that scripture and theology works. We can't always do that, (laughs) but we have to remember, we have to make sure that the scriptures are the centerpiece of all of our proclamation about who God is, what he's done for us and how it is that we are to live our lives. Right on. I mean, what's great about these chapters as Beaky moves us into examples is that we, he gives us like these, these little, oh man, I hate this word, but I can't think of anything better. He gives these like little nuggets about each of these, these preachers. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things that really jumped out to me, some of which you've already mentioned, but uh, in terms of Zwingli, the fact that like he was really born only seven weeks after Martin Luther. So he's like a contemporary of Luther, which is really interesting. Right. Many, many might not automatically understand that. And in terms of his preaching, what I think is really interesting is that for him, many of his sermons didn't necessarily have themes or points. And yeah. I think we would find that like very unmodern, this idea that like, we well, have to have a theme. Like you can't just yeah. get up there and start like just exegeting the scripture, like willy nilly, like just straight up. 
And, and yet that was something that he was not afraid to do. And something that you already mentioned that I found interesting is that he would literally just get up and preach. And when time was over, like it was over, but he yep. would not preach any, a, a second less than what was allotted to him in terms of like the, the actual time to speak, to right. preach the sermon. And that sermon usually consisted of like two or two to four verses that were covered in the new Testament and four to seven verses of the old. So clearly we have this, again, like this amalgamation of both old and new testaments as gaining prominence and authority in the preaching on any given Lord's day. Right. They were both represented, but with the understanding that there's only so much that can be covered. Like, I think that sometimes we think that these guys, as we kind of hold them up as like a wonderful and amazing, like illustrative examples of what it means to preach. Like there are logistics in preaching. And so I love when I get to learn about the logistics of good preachers. And so like, apparently in his time, people were just totally blown away that somebody would just preach from the Bible. Yeah. That they would just literally open up the text and say, here is what it plainly means to us. And here's how we should apply it to our lives. And so apparently it was just amazing that he would preach, the tr not the traditions of men or theological polemics, but here's just what the scriptures say. And so the fact that there's, again, in that, there's something that's just amazingly simple. And the only good example I can have it, that I have in comparison is like super nerdy. So like, for instance, there was a time and day in which like the business of banking was just super boring. Cause all it is, is like you just get money from people who are saving and you lend it to people who are borrowing. That's a super boring business. And nowadays, most of the problems in our financial system have come because we've made, we tried to make that an exciting business and in much the same way, the business of preaching is in some ways very simple in that it really is just expounding. It is really just exegeting what the scriptures say. And I think that, so many of us, that's what we really want. We don't realize that that's what we want. But Zoe was just an excellent example of a dude that would just get up for 50 to 60 minutes and say, here is what the scripture says to us this day as we've been tracking along with it. Yeah. And in some ways, that's a condemnation on us as listeners, as those in our congregation, because we have all been the kind of people that when it gets close to noon, we look at our watches to see what time it is. Yep. And we need to kind of be the kind of people that say like, this is our spiritual food. This is our literal substance for the essence of our being. And we need to be not so concerned about how long, like we should just be able to say like, when our pastor gets up, like as the Lord has directed you for as ever long as you want to speak, I will sit here and listen to you. And yep. that's yet such a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you try to think of like other instances in your life where, it would be inappropriate to check your watch, right? Like you're in a meeting with your boss and your boss right. is talking. You're not going to like check your watch and be like, I've got somewhere I need to be. Right. Or, or right. like you think about the times when the, when time just doesn't matter to you, right? You're on that first date with that girl you really like. You don't sit there and check your watch unless, unless you have something you're committed to after that date. You know, like if you, if she's got like a curfew, like, you know, or like you're a student, you have to be back by the dorms by a certain time. That makes sense. But by and large, you don't care how long the date is. If it's going well, if you're enjoying it, you don't want it to stop. And so you don't care what time it is. Sometimes you purposely don't check your watch because you want to be able to say, oh, sorry, I was late. I lost track of time. But like right. when we're sitting under the preaching of the word, it's true that we very often are kind of treating it like, well, when is this going to be over? Right. You sort of listen for those like verbal cues that the pastor is about to sort of like land the plane and you get a little bit excited. You kind of sit up a little bit and you're like, oh, good. We're almost done. I can get to lunch. Right. But that's not how it should be. Like we shouldn't we shouldn't be like that. And I think, you know, on top of that, I was thinking like, yeah, it seems insane to say like you're going to approach the scripture and you're going to preach without a theme or a point. But to say that you need to add a point is to say that the scripture doesn't have its own point. Yeah, exactly. Right? If you if you feel like you have to bring logic, like you have to bring a source or a sense of logic to the text that isn't already in the text, then you've already failed at what's going on. Your point is not to bring a point or to to give a sense of coherence to a text that doesn't have its own point and doesn't have its own internal coherence. Your purpose as a preacher, as an exegete, is to bring out that point or to bring out that internal coherence and explain it to your listeners. And, you know, I think about like, as I've been reading the scriptures, this has come up so many times that people are going to get sick of me saying it. But as I've been, been doing these reading plans where I'm reading these large chunks of scripture, that point has been driven home to me in a totally different way. Where when you sit down and you read a whole section of the Bible, like a large chunk of the scripture, you see that internal coherence, that internal point 
that is already present in the text. And it's so much better than anything we could, we could come up with on our own because it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. So I just think we have to get back to that idea that like the text has its own point and the purpose of the preacher is not to create a point, but to, to bring out and help understand that point for the congregation. Right on. I, I sense that there's so so much, and I think maybe this is a, a good inclination, but there's there's so much, I think, of modern preachers that want to bring out this unified theme or feel like they need to manufacture or construct it. But what that ends up doing in the end is saying that the preacher is above the scriptures because he feels right. like the need to, I need to create some kind of unification here. And so that is a problem because it is subtly placing ourselves above the scriptures. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to like kind of get a sense from you on is let's talk real quick about like the, the last two dudes that he mentioned. So we have Heinrich Bullinger and uh, Oka Limpadius. And I wanted to see if there's anything in particular that kind of in, in deference to them and, and kind of seeing what really was, was impressive about them. Again, again, as I think just as men of God who were so serious about communicating the scriptures, if there's something that was drawn out that you kind of like identified with them. For me, what I was really impressed with in terms of a Bullinger, uh, and this is somewhat of an affirmation, is that, so he published like 618 sermons, and the most popular of which were this collection that he united together under the name of The Decades, which he published. And it was this covering of the whole field of reform systematic theology. Now, I have not read all of The Decades, but I can say the portions that I've read are absolutely fantastic. So if you're looking for a book that's like in the public domain, that would be really inexpensive for you to get a hold of, that kind of flies under the radar. The Decades are this amazing publication because uh, Henrik Bollinger was basically, he was the assistant to Zwingli, and then he followed him as, as the as preacher yeah. in the Grossmünster. So he was, by his, on his own right, a really an amazing preacher. And what we see in these guys, I think, that is like really instructive for us today is just how dedicated they were, how productive they were. So like yeah. sometimes productivity in Christian circles gets a bum rap because they kind of say like, well, productivity seems like a secular goal. Like if you're really focused on trying to be more productive, shouldn't you spend more time praying and what God does through you is what God does through you. And yet Bollinger preached 53 of the 66 books of the Old Testament at least once. He preached several of them three times, some of them four times. Yeah. That's like incredible. So here's a guy who like had a work ethic, but it wasn't bound up in like, I just want to work a lot of hours because I'm a workaholic. But there was a real sense that he was one who sacrificed for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ yeah. and did so in a way that his life was yet balanced. So there's a lot in that that was just really impacted me. Is there anything that in particular that like really hit you with him? Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, the, the Christocentrism of both um, Bollinger and uh, Zwingli was something that wasn't a surprise to me, but it was nice to see Dr. Beaky kind of call that out, is that, you know, in the, the sermons, if you can even call them sermons of the medieval church, were predominantly moral lessons. They took the scripture and they kind of turned them into like Aesop's fables. Um, even even like the right. didactic teachings of the church were sort of turned into these distilled, almost platonic moral lessons. And so for, for Bollinger and um, Zwingli to sort of bring that back and say, no, the scripture's not, the scripture certainly has things to say to us about how to live a moral life. But in, in point of fact, the, the central, the scope of the scriptures, to use the language of the Westminster Confession, the scope of the whole is to give all glory to God, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So the scope scope doesn't mean like the totality. We use the word scope to mean like the broad, the broad contours, like the scope of the scope of the class is like everything in it. But in in that terminology, the scope is actually think of like the scope on a rifle. You point the right. scope of the rifle at the target, and that scope shows you where your bullet is going to go. And that's what they're saying is that the scope of the whole in the scripture is to give all glory to God. And they don't say this, but I think it's implied, which is only to give glory to God in Jesus Christ. So th to see that that was really brought back to the fore. And th the other thing that I think bears saying, um, Beaky brings out a good point that the statements that Zwingli makes that like he was uninfluenced by Luther, that those are probably exaggerated. But the fact that they were contemporaries and the fact that Zwingli was coming to basically the same conclusions about the Reformation, about the scriptures that Luther was mostly independent of him 
is important for us to remember because the Reformation should not and must not be seen. This is why I kind of balk at the idea of Reformation Day. I kind of joke about it, but I actually do have some theological and historical objections to that, is that the Reformation didn't start on October 31st, 1517, right? That's kind of the day we mark it as starting. But in reality, the Reformation started kind of all over Europe all at the same time. Right. It wasn't it wasn't an isolated right. event. It wasn't something that had a particular genesis point. It started in Switzerland with Zwingli. It started in, you know, Germany with with Luther. It started in parts of Rome with people who were Roman Catholic priests who would then leave the Roman Catholic Church and join forces with these people. So there's there's these names and forces all across Europe that are coming to similar and same conclusions about the text. So I, I really appreciated that Dr. Beaky called that out, that Zwingli wasn't utterly independent, right? They were in, they were interacting with each other, conversing with each other through writing. But his Reformation started in Zurich, mostly predominantly because of his his reading of scripture, right? They all got their hands on the Greek New Testament and they all kind of had the same realizations of like, We've had it all wrong for the last three or 400 years. Right. Um, so I think that was an important feature. And, and to just think about like everything we have is handed down to us. Right. But this was actually a point in time where for the most part, what they had wasn't handed down to them. So the, the tremendous um, burden that it must have been to say, you know, I really think I'm seeing something different than what the church has been teaching and to have the boldness to actually stand up and say that and say, no, I, I stand on the word of God and this is what the word of God says, that takes a bold, courageous man. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, even the best of us now, I'm not sure there's anyone that has that in them right now. No one that I can think of what I would say is able and willing to stand against the entire, you know, basically the entire church around them solely on the word of God. Um, I think that that's something that we really need to remember about these guys is that, you know, they're in a totally different context and they really were, they were standing on the shoulders of giants and yes, they were able to reach back into the early church fathers, but for the most part, they stood on the word of God and the word of God alone. And that's something that we really, we really need to admire about them. And that's why this is such a marvelous book to consider because in a sense, what God has done for anybody, he can do for you and I. So the fact that he is empowering these gentlemen to really move forward in the proclamation of the gospel against a culture, like you said, that is, is totally, basically has got it wrong in, in every conceivable way, is exemplary in illustrative because it should give us encouragement. It should inspire us. It should move us forward. It should give us energy to want to run through a wall to really proclaim that Jesus is King and Lord of all. Yeah. And so I, there's so much I appreciate about these gentlemen. And yet we need to be careful, of course, not to uphold them to some kind of standard that isn't w- something that they would disagree with in terms of their authority. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about the Zwingli and all of them is that there is like this commitment, of course, to like the Lectio Continua that we've been talking about. And yet at the same time, all of them took time on the Lord's Day, allowing for space to address like contemporary matters or heresies, which right. I think is fantastic. That they they saw the need to, of course, go through the scriptures in a disciplined manner. But at times there was a need to address something that was specific. And so they would put what they were talking about on hold so as to address that heresy very explicitly. Not to kind of bring some kind of tacit understanding, but to say, this is what's going on in our day and age. And we need to be firm in our addressing of it. Uh, You know, just to kind of round things out as we kind of conclude, you know, one of the things I found interesting is I, I don't know a whole lot about... Johannes Oculampadius, except that he has a super sweet name. But clearly there was so much that God was doing in this space of like a, a few short years, bringing these, these men together that he was born in 1482. So that means that he, he mentored Philip Melanthin. And then I didn't know that he helped Erasmus complete his annotations on the Greek new Testament. Yeah. So it's like this, like amazing group of guys being together, influencing one another, like if, is there ever such a space where you can say, here's iron sharpening iron, yeah. gentlemen that are on fire for what God is doing and are firmly committed to making it known in their own generation? Like, may it be said of us that we would be these kind of people. And reading this kind of work from Beaky just gets me fired up to that end. Yeah. Little known fact about Oikolampadius, he actually was Michael Servetus's roommate for a while. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think this was probably before Michael Servetus went crazy and started saying heretical things and <laughs> try, basically trying to get himself killed. Um, but yeah, uh, Servetus lived with Michael Lampedius for a little while. And, and I think that goes to show that there really was this um, 
revival, right? The Reformation is fundamentally a revival, right? right? It's a rediscovery of the gospel, not just in the church broadly, capital C as an entity, but it's a rediscovery of the gospel in the lives of these men who were then set on fire by the gospel and then then spread that fire through their preaching to the rest of first Europe and then to the world, right? So we have to remember that like these guys, as I said with the others, these guys are discovering this in the scriptures, kind of, kind of de novo in a certain sense, right? They're not, right. they're not building directly on p- things that had been taught to them immediately prior to this. They're looking at the scriptures, and there had to be this sense of what, what is happening? Like, what are we doing? How, how is this? How can this be that this has been wrong for so long? But at the same time, they were bound to the scriptures, and Oikolampadius is is no different, right? He he was a preacher who bound himself to the scriptures and he was committed to explaining and exposing those scriptures to those under his care. And he had such a huge influence on Calvin that I think, you know, we really owe a lot of what we think of as Calvinism to Oikolampadius's influence. Now, he, he departed sure. from what we might consider kind of traditional Reformed Orthodoxy in certain ways, but but his influence on Calvin and his his academic influence on the Reform movement as a whole definitely should not be underestimated, even though we don't talk about Oikolampadius very much. Right. And one of the incredible thing about Oikolampadius and Zwingli and Bullinger is that their brilliance, if, you, if we can say it that way, if we just want to kind of acknowledge their influence purely in humanistic terms, is actually their devotion to what is simple. Yes. So the fact that, for, for instance, one of those things is that so many were moved by the fact that what these gentlemen were preaching was that God could be approached directly through Jesus without having to go through Mary or the saints. Yes. Now, your average Protestant is going to be like, that seems like, like you know, something that's, that's being taught like in the pre-K Sunday school. Yeah. And yet this is how life-changing it was for those who just needed to hear the gospel straight up without any kind of frivolity, without any kind of trappings, just what the Bible taught. And so I think that is encouragement and it is admonition in our own day and age to ask, where is it that we need to return to the straight up gospel yeah. without any kind of man-made human trappings? And, and I think that's where we, we get with them. And this is a wonderful example to both reflect internally and then to move into the scriptures and say, where is it that we just need to come back home? And I, I think that is the legacy in some respects that they leave for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, I mean, that's a good way to round this out. So folks, if you have not picked up your copy of Reform Preaching, uh, you can get it. We're just going into chapter six and we have a lot of chapters still to go. So you are still basically in on the ground floor if you were to pick this up this weekend. Um, we would love it if people would pick up the book, join us in reading it, join us in reflecting on it. Um, it really is a, a fabulous work of theology and history. And it will make you, if you're a preacher, it will make you a better preacher. And if you're not a preacher, it will make the preaching of the word more uh, approachable and efficacious for you. So it really is a profitable book for anybody who, um, anybody who's a Christian, right? That, and that should be just about right. all of our listeners. Um, and, and even if you're not a Christian and, and you want to you know, take a look at it, it's still profitable to understand what it is, this thing that these Christians do on Sunday morning. What is this thing? You know, what, what other group of people regularly sits and studies the exact same thing week in and week out and, and just does this. Like it's, it really is fully foolish, the folly to the Greeks, right. For us to just sit and read through the same book over and over again, um, which is not some fanciful technical book. It's, it's a common book written by common people. Um, but yet it is the power of power of God for salvation in the lives of his people. Right. So pick up the book, check it out. Um, it's, it's, it's a really, really great resource. And the way that you and I are talking about this in terms of like how we set out the schedule is we're just doing one chapter a month, which can seem a little bit slow, but we did that purposely so that it would allow people to kind of jump in. So it's never yep. too late. If we're only in chapter five. So yep. there's, there's plenty of time you can track along with us. In some ways, the chapters are compartmentalized, but it, it's great to read all the way through. So it's never too late to join in on this bandwagon, like get on the reform preaching train. It's definitely hasn't left the station yet. And I think this is probably a good, again, segue 
Although it feels like I always need to say the word segue, which perhaps means it's not a good segue. But <laughs> uh, we've been closing out uh, now like our episodes in a way that I absolutely love, which is this idea of like spiritual conferencing, where we get to kind of just share really briefly about some of the things that God is teaching us just by way of the personal reading that we've been doing, how we've been meditating on the scriptures. So yeah. I, I want to let you kick it off if you're cool with that. Like, wh- what is something that God has kind of been teaching you in this particular week? Yeah. So, um, uh, just a little spoiler for my episode with uh, Reformed Pilgrims is um, we are talking about the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother, that your li- uh, your your life may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so I've been reflecting a lot on the nature of authority and submission. And then to add that, right, last Sunday was Mother's Day. Uh, my own mother came from Minnesota and visited this week. So I've been thinking a lot about our parents and how we submit to them and, and what that means as an adult. So really just thinking about that concept um, has really been kind of impressed on me this week that like submission really should mark the life of a Christian, right? Submission to God, right. submission to those who God has put in our lives, whether it's pastors or elders um, or, or the deacons of the church, to our parents, to our employers, to the government, um, to our spouses, although husbands submit to their wives in a different sense and in a different way than wives submit to their husbands, but we are to submit one to another. So I, I've just been thinking a lot about the concept of submission, and it really has made me kind of reflect on how sometimes I do have kind of a stubborn attitude. Like I have this idea that like I'm, I'm my own person and I have my own stuff that I'm doing and I can take care of myself. And that's just not the way that God has designed the universe to function. Man, that's heavy because so at your recommendation, as you know, we, we started this journey, my wife and I on going through all the recommended, at least like Marvel movies so we can appreciate (laughs) the latter ones. And you know, what I've been struck with is when you watch those, like, yeah, you want like a superhero, you want the dude that is like strong and powerful. And yet like per what you're just saying here, we have a savior and that savior comes. Not only is there just amazing condescension, which would be enough, but here we have that our savior is the one that takes on the activities of a slave, like unashamedly. And then he Mm -hmm. speaks about that and says like, if you've seen me do this, then how much more is that not the way that you ought to behave with every person in your sphere of influence. So that's just like a heavy word. And I, and I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. What about you? Uh, so I've been stuck, as I've said before, like I just keep coming back to, or at least I think God and his amazing infinite kindness and mercy keeps drawing me back to trying to understand what it means to be united with Christ. So I've been kind of processing some of Romans and just realizing that I really have no idea what that means. I mean, just to be totally candid, I think there's a lot of things that I could say that I know I should say in terms of what it means in terms of using like all these cliches, but just this idea that to to be in Christ is something that I think that we can in some ways respect and understand here on earth, but we'll not know and appreciate until we stand before in in kind of like that white throne uh, judgment and understand what it means to say like, not just I'm with Jesus, I am in Jesus. And there's like amazing differences in that one preposition. And so I've really just been trying to understand more and God has been pressing on my heart, this amazing gift that we are in Christ. And so there's an, an incredible difference between having a gospel presentation. So, so in other words, let me say this real quick. You can receive a gospel presentation that gets you to the same end point as what it means to be in Christ. But the journey in between those two points, A and B, is immensely different and can be somewhat traumatic. So a lot of what the gospel presentation we get nowadays in modern evangelicalism is here are all the benefits in Christ. Don't you want to be saved? You realize you have guilt. You realize that you are not right with God. You realize that you need to be freed from the chains that bind you. And I would say, yes, amen, of course, all those things are true. But there's a different presentation of the gospel that is more centered on what the scripture and the full counsel of God says to us. That is, you, what you need is to be in Christ, not the benefits of Christ but to be given Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. And though, again, you end up saved in both cases, there is one, and that is the latter, that is infinitely more satisfying and beautiful, and that is exactly what God wants for us. And I'm trying to align all of my worldview, all of my thoughts, all of my presentations with that second, which is to be in Christ. So I'm still processing that. If somebody has it figured out, please email us at info at (laughs) reformbrother.com. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think, you know, if... If you were to, um, you know, the most common analogy that is used in scripture, or one of the most common analogies that's used for 
the relationship God has with his elect, with his people is, is the analogy of a wedding or a marriage. Right. And, you know, if you were to, to pull a, a groom aside the, the day before his wedding and say, tell me, tell me why you want to marry this woman. And all that he said was, well, you know, she's, she's beautiful. She's funny. Um, you know, she's got a lot of cool stuff that I'm going to inherit because I become her husband. Um, you know, we get to, we get to have children together. We get to, we get to have sex, you know, all the benefits right. of marriage. Um, if that was all he was to say, and somewhere in there, there was no, no point that he said, and I really love her. Like we would think something is wrong if all that the person could talk Absolutely. about in terms of their desire to be married to someone was about the the benefits that they are going to receive because of their union with that person and not actually talk about their excitement for the fact that they get to they get to live life and be unified to that person for life to become one flesh. We would be really concerned. But how much do we often talk about our union with Christ in just that way? Right. I get to be right. saved from my sin. I get to be, uh, I get to go to heaven. I get to have eternal delights. Now, those are all things that the, the scripture obviously talks about as benefits. But if we never take that step to say, I get Jesus, I get God, like I get the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we never get to that point, then I, I think we fail to understand the nature of salvation. Amen. I love that. I mean, I hope that people, that's a really good word, man. I mean, that, that hits me. And I hope that people will meditate on exactly what you just said. One of the resources that has been helpful to me that explains exactly what you just said in song, because again, you know, a musical person is, I may have affirmed this before, but um, in, in kind of closing, I want to recommend a particular, which is one song. If you're listening to one thing this week, what I encourage you to look up is a piece of music by a group called the city harmonic and it's called wedding day. And it's exactly, it tells the story in song of exactly what you just said. And it's a piece of music that almost always moves me to tears because it is that beautiful and it is really focusing on what it means to be in Christ. Yeah. So man, if there's, if there's anything that we get out of this particular kind, uh, this podcast, I hope that's that we're moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.